0: We are in Ephesians four twenty five through 32. Parents, if, you're, if your kids talk, act up, whatever, they are kids, I expect them to do that. And so it's not offending me, it might offend some people around you, but this will be sanctification for them and nerve building for you. And so let's, let's show our kids how to, to study God's Word well. And so if you want to grab a pew Bible and hand it to them, open it up, show them the passage you're reading or have them follow along on the screens, that would be good and beneficial for them this morning. This morning, we're in Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. Let me read the passage and then we will just, we will walk through it together. Paul writes and he says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. What we see in twenty-five through thirty-two is, is really just it's it's kind of a catch-all. It's kind of a catch-all. We came through last week, and and you remember when we got into 22 through 24 of chapter 4 there in Ephesians, Paul effectively came into it, and he said, there was an older part of you, that part of you that's dead. Put that off. Put that off. And then he comes into verse 23, and he said, you need to renew your mind. You need to continue this process of renewing your mind. And then there in 24, he said, and you need to put on the new self, and what we find is in 25 through 32 are all the things, effectively, this, this vestigial imprint of the old self. This, our former way of existence, our former way of being. Effectively, you could say it this way. He says, be this way, and these are the ethical imperatives that break out from that. These are the things we have to do by virtue of the fact we have put on the new self. By virtue of the fact that we have put on the new self, there are certain characteristics that just can't be in our lives anymore. And that's what Paul's calling us to. Effectively, he says this, he has saved you, now be living in accordance with what you are. He has made you to be free, now be free. He has made you to be sanctified and holy, now be holy. Walk in accordance with what he has made you to be. And so we remember there in the end of verse 24 of chapter 4 in Ephesians, he said, you have put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness And holiness. And on the basis of this reality, that you have divested yourself of what you used to be, you're renewing your mind, and that you have put on the new self, therefore, do these things. Well, look how he starts. And what you're going to recognize in this is that Paul largely splits them according to words, attitudes, and actions. And we're going to look at them in that vein. So he starts off in verse 25 and he, he goes after the idea of there are certain ways that we use our words that are appropriate, certain ways that are inappropriate. And so he says, Therefore, having put away all falsehood, having put away all falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. And so he gives the negative. He said, Look, put away all falsehood, stop lying. That's it. I mean, that's, that's kind of it, right? He comes in, he says, stop lying. You say, well, look, I don't lie very much. I lie a little bit on my taxes, but hey, just enough to get away with. And, and if I ever get audited, I'll be honest. And that's a bad idea. That's a bad idea. It's a good way to make a CPA some money, but this is a bad idea. He comes into this and he says, put away all falsehood. And we recognize the first thing that most of us uh, find easy in this is just, not telling outright lies to those we encounter. Not telling outright lies to those we encounter, but we struggle, we find it especially difficult in putting away all falsehood to not, not put forward this false sense of self. Like one of the ways we really struggle with falsehood is putting forth this image of somebody who has it all together, right? Whether it be on Facebook, Instagram, or or whatever way you seek to communicate. Maybe it's just the way you dress. Maybe it's the fact that you never have people over to your home because you're terrified that if they saw you as you really were, you would have no friends. This is what Paul says. Put away all falsehood. Everything in you that doesn't testify to who you really are by virtue of the fact that you have put on the new man, Paul says put away. Get away push it away from you just as you took off the old self just as he came to you and used these words and said you need to take the old self and throw it away it is put away in salvation now he comes and he says one of the imprints of this old self is falsehood this old man he is known by being a deceiver this old man this old way of life that was in you he is known as being a deceiver and so you need to put away all falsehood now how do you counter this How do you counter this? It was as if I came up to you and I said, I said, Beth, let me ask you a question. When does a person no longer seek to be a liar? And Beth said, I don't know. That's a good question. That's a good question. She said, I. I don't know, I, I, I guess it's when, I, guess it's when you know, I, I stopped telling lies so much. And I said, well, Beth, let me ask you the question again. Beth, when does a person cease to be a liar? And she said, I don't know, you seem seems like you're not all that satisfied with my first response, but, I, but I'm really like it, I'm going to go with it again. It seems like it's when a person ceases to be a liar, they cease to be deceptive. Other ways that I might be able to describe this word to you, why are you so thick, Matt? Beth, give me a break, I only asked you twice. When you start telling the truth. When you start telling the truth, you cease to be a liar. Look how Paul counters this. Put away all falsehood, put away all falsehood, and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Put away all falsehood, get rid of it, kick it out, get rid of it, don't let it be any way in any shape or form in your life. How you think of yourself, How you view others, how you engage in conversation, how you characterize them or yourself. He just put it away. And what does he say next? Speak the truth with your neighbors. Speak the truth with your neighbors. Now, Paul is talking about here not people you live on the same street with. He's not talking about people you live on the same street with. He is talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Remember, Paul has made this argument over and over and over again that we are one in Christ. Now, writing to those in Ephesus, he's saying the Jew and the Gentile, they are one in Christ. But we recognize here at Ridgecrest that we are one no matter what your socioeconomic background, no matter if you grew up on the north side of town, south side of town, moved here recently, or your family has been here since the 1800s. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you are one. If you are in Jesus Christ, then you are part of one body together. One body together. And in that body, This is the defense. Recognize, Paul says the negative. Put away all falsehood. Put away all falsehood. He goes to the positive. Instead, speak the truth one to another. Why? The rationale, the reason he gives here is for we are members one of another. Think of it this way. If my body is a representation of the church, And my eyes are seeking to deceive the rest of my body. And so my body is walking towards this edge that many of you think I'm going to fall off every week as I get closer and closer and my feet hang off the end. And my eyes are telling my body, it's all good. There's plenty of stage. Don't you worry about it. What's going to happen? One day, I'm going to fall off. I planned that. But one day, I'm going to eat it, and it's not going to be funny. You're going to laugh, but I'm not going to think it's funny. Some of you who will still be members after you laugh, you you know, whatever. But my eyes, if they deceive my body, it leads me to continue in a path and a direction that is considerably unhealthy for me. The reason we can't lie to one another, the reason we can't tell uh, false truths about one another, the reason we can't seek to build up a brother. And so if Linda comes to me and and she's talking to me, and she's, she's sharing some concern with me. And I'm like, oh, don't worry. You're just so good. You're so great. And you're so wonderful. And she leaves my office. And then I go to my secretary. I'm like, she's terrible. She is awful. She's the worst thing I've ever heard of. I'm lying to her. That's not true. I tell her every week how great you are. That's just not true. And I can't do that. On the one hand, because we, that's been put off for me, but the reason he gives us in here is because we are a part of the same body. If we are seeking to deceive our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we're seeking to destroy the unity of the body that Christ himself created through his death. He has united us. He has made us one in him. Words. Words are a great representation of kind of who we are and how we follow. Let's let's continue on that path of words. Look down in verse 29. Verse 29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear it. You'll remember when we went through the book of James together, that when you around about the time you hit James chapter 3, James gives you this idea that words are incredibly powerful and your tongue is incredibly difficult to master. And our words portray kind of who we are on the inside. Our words, to a certain degree, portray who we are on the inside. And so James, he, he portrays this, this, what he refers to as kind of this dichotomy. He said, look, in verse 9 in chapter 3 of James, he says, speaking of our tongue, he said, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and curse. My brothers, my brothers, these things ought not be so. So, James is calling us to having true speech, having speech that honors God. And what Paul writes here in verse 29, he says, Look, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Stop it. Like, put your hand on your mouth. If you feel it welling up inside you, keep it in. Like, keep it in, don't let it spill out on the people around you. And you say, well, what does this actually mean, this idea of corrupting speech? Paul, in the word he's using there, it conjures this image of, of rotting meat, rancid flesh. Have you ever f- smelt a fish that's been kept in a cooler days after it was caught with no ice? And you walk over unsuspecting, and maybe there's a little bit of blood bait down in there just because some sick freak left it in there. And you open this thing up on a good Texas August day, and that smell just pops you right in the face. And you just, man, it stings the eyes, it burns the nostrils, and it knocks you way back. Effectively, that's what Paul's saying. Don't let this type of foul speech come out of your mouth. And you say, well, Matt, my wife talks like this, but I never do. My, my parents talk like this, but I never do. I've never had any, any corrupting, any foul, any, any deceptive speech come out of my mouth. Oh, yeah? Look how Paul characterizes it. Welcome to my week. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up. This is effectively what he does. You say, "Well, you know, profanity. I've kind of given up on that. It's, it's, it's my New Year's thing. i got a rubber band. I pop myself every time I say a cuss word. I don't even say substitutes for cuss words. All I say is good, bad, that's it. These are my adjectives for life. Paul comes in here and he says, look, this isn't what I'm talking about. I'm not entering into this discussion of what is profane and what is not, but what I'm telling you, what I'm telling you, when you engage in speech, not for the subject or not for the ends of building people up around you, then you're engaging in corrupting terrible, awful speech. And we remember our weak, and we remember those not so charitable, charitable opinions that we held of other people, and we remember how we used our words to lower the people around us, and we remember with our words how we characterize those that we encounter. Paul says, "Let no corrupting speech come out of your mouth. Don't allow this speech to come out of your mouth that can have a negative impact on those that you encounter. Instead." Only such is that is good for building up for people. And look, what he, look how he, he, he situates this. Only allows a speech to come out of your mouth that is good for building people up as fits the occasion. Or as, as need may be is another way that it might be translated. To what end? That it may give grace to those who hear. It's a quick test for us. When you go out and you engage someone in conversation, are you seeking to build them up or tear them down? Are you seeking to make yourself feel better or seeking to build into these other people? The way we read the text here, our engagement with other people, when we use words to communicate to them, we are seeking, according to the dictative scripture, to build them up, to give grace to them through our words. And so when you hit to the end of a conversation, if you were to say, Ken, you and I talked this week, when we hit the end of that conversation, did you feel like I was building grace into your life? And Ken would just slap me. He'd say, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard you say. We had an awful conversation this week. This is an indication that Ken and I have not entered into a conversation where I'm seeking to build him up and pour grace into his life. This didn't happen. Ken didn't slap me. We never had this conversation. Look what Paul says here. He's talking about our words. He said, look, deceit falsehood, it's got no place to be named among you, corrupting words, infighting in a church. You want to stop a fight in a church? You ask the two sides that are warring on either side, is what you're doing building the other person up? If one of them says no, you say, well, then you have no room to talk. What he's pointing at here is so vitally important for the health and vitality of the church. You remember a few weeks ago, we were looking at chapter 4 and verse 15 in Ephesians. And we took this, this billy club that everybody likes to use, speaking the truth in love. And we said, everybody likes to use this, especially with people they dislike. Like, how does that work, Right? I find somebody you dislike and now you have to love them in order to go talk to them. It doesn't work that way. Paul wants us to be so careful with how we use words because our words are a representative of how we feel about the gospel. They're a reflection of how we feel about the gospel and ultimately how we submit to Jesus and how we refer, speak to, and describe those made in the image and the likeness of God. Amen. Talks about our attitudes. He says, since we have put off the old man, renewed our minds, and put on the new man, our attitudes have to be a certain way. So in verse 26, Paul says, Be angry. And at least half a dozen of you quietly inside are doing a dance. Be angry. Finally, someone has said in a sermon what you have felt in your innermost being for the majority of your life. Be angry. And you're rejoicing. And you're so happy. And you feel so vindicated over your week. You're so so vindicated over your year. So vindicated from your conversation with your spouse, your parent, or your children last night. Be angry. And then he takes all the wind out of your sails and he says, and do not sin. Now you're wishing you to stay at home. He says, be angry And then he matches it quickly with this caveat of, and do not sin. There is such a thing as righteous anger. We see Jesus portray it. We see God personify it. But when it comes to you and I, it's difficult to know what is righteous and what is just self-righteousness. Right? It's difficult to know, am I getting angry? Am I going like a righteous Hulk moment here? Or am I just being a jerk? It's hard to know. It's hard to know. We are experts at discovering those things in other people that are illegitimate. And so if Chase and I are engaging in something and he is angry, then I am quick to look at Chase and say, he's just being a jerk. He is not keeping from sinning. He's just being angry. And Chase would say the same thing back at me. He'd say, Matt is not being righteous in this display of anger. He's just being ugly. He's being A jerk, to use Chase's description of me earlier in the week. We'll talk. We'll talk. He says, be angry and do not sin. This is another one of these places where this gets taken radically out of context and used and abused. Because typically, we internally are the ones determining whether or not we are sinning, right? Right? We're the ones that are determining whether or not we're sinning. And so seldom do we, after being especially angry with somebody, walk over to them and say, let me ask you a question. Three questions. Three questions. Um, well, let's, let's skip the first one because I think that's not right. Let's skip the second one because I think that's not right. And let me just throw out there. Do you, did you get any type of general vibe that I was sinning in this at all? Like this isn't a conversation we have with people. We want to be the ones to determine whether or not we are sinning in our anger. We certainly don't want to ask anybody else to weigh in on it, because chances are, typically, as we respond in anger, we are responding in sin. Can I tell you, as a church, there are things we should absolutely be angry with. We should be ang- angry, we should be distressed when we see moral decay around us, when we see women sold into lifestyles, when we see children's lives taken from them, when we see the elderly abused, when we see them not cared for, these things should well up, well up in us righteous anger. But when we see our own individual perspective and opinions squashed, when we don't see our own individual wants and desires manifest and held by others around us, this is a place really quickly This is a dangerous place where we move from righteous anger to self-righteous indignation. Trying to impose our own wants, desires, and particulars on other people around us. How they dress, how they sound, where they live, how they spend their money, how they sing, when they sing, do they stand, do they sit, all these things. Do they drink alcohol, do they not? Do they smoke, do they not? All of these things quickly move in us to become mandates. They quickly move in us to become gospel imperatives. And it moves from righteous anger to self-righteous indignation. Look at this attitude. He says, be angry, and he matches it with this, this admonition to not sin. And this is how he seeks to temper our anger. This is how Paul seeks to keep us from slipping in to sinning. He says, look, don't let the sun go down on your anger. This isn't an indication that if, that if you are married to your spouse and you guys have a spat at night, like, neither one of you gets to go to sleep until it's satisfied. This is not an indication that if you do fall asleep in the middle of a discussion, that your marriage is ruined. right? Don't let the sun go down. And so you guys are both just talking as fast as you can, watching the sun creep down on the horizon, panicked, panicked that you're both about to sin you laugh because you know it's true I remember I, I mean, I got this marital advice I remember the first time Valerie and I got into an argument and bedtime is getting closer and closer I'm panicking I'm like she's clearly sinning <laughs> it's not going to look that way I was clearly wrong you've met my wife you know how gracious and wonderful and amazing she is Nobody laughed. Everybody said amen. He's not trying to describe the time restraints of working out difficulty. What he's trying to do is give you a sense of the urgency of working out difficulty. If you have been angry with someone for any length of time, you recognize it moves really quickly from just being flush with anger to settling Deep inside you is bitterness. Settling deep inside you is bitterness. What was kind of this outward move towards you against them, when you don't deal with it quickly, it resides in your heart as bitterness. It resides in your heart as bitterness. It creates distance between you and God. It wrecks the fellowship of those around you because you are bitter, because you are not dealing with this anger, with this resentment, with this breach in fellowship with your other brother and sister in Christ. And look what he says next. He says there needs to be urgency. Don't let the sun go down. But there needs to be such a careful sense of this matters for your own spiritual well-being. Look, he says, and don't give an opportunity to the devil. Be angry and do not sin. Don't hold on to this anger. And then the last thing he says is. Your enemy the devil is seeking to devour you. First Peter 5.8 characterizes him as this roaring lion. That is creeping around. That is looking for vulnerability in you. He's looking for vulnerability in you. So that he might pounce on it. So that he might expose it. So that he might separate you from the flock. Our enemy loves anger in you. He adores it. He loves anger in you, and he certainly loves for you to believe that this anger in you is justified and is right and is to be held on to until you're satisfied. This enemy will, he will stay up at night with you he will whisper in your ear how right you are. Every well-reasoned argument you bring back to him, he'll say, don't believe that. Don't hear these words. You've, You've never been wronged this way before. No one really understands. Hold on to this anger. Wait until they make restitution to you. It's a lie. The way that we approach anger is seeking to get rid of it quickly. The way that we approach anger is recognizing that it is this foothold. It is this place in our lives, an opportunity for the devil to lead us away and to shackle us with the old self that is to be soundly put off. It is antithetical. It is opposed to the way that we are meant to live. Now Look how Paul moves into actions. Look how he moves into actions in verse 28. That as we have put off the old, renewed our mind, and put on the new, that he calls us to have this manifested in action. So he comes in, he says, let the thief no longer steal. Let the thief no longer steal. Now this is something that, that this is how we know who the thief is, right? This is his occupation. This is, Display is who he is. What does this? What does a thief do? He steals. If you were to meet a thief, you can say, "Hey, what do you do for a living?" He might say, "Well, you know, I don't tell very many people this, but but because we're such close friends, I steal." Oh, really? Do you do anything else? Ah, uh, you know, mainly stealing. I call it thieving. Occasionally, just for a variety, but. But really, I steal. And so this is what he's calling to. He says, let the thief no longer steal. Let the one who is known by virtue of what he did no longer be known as that. What he's effectively saying is when this new man comes in, when this new man comes in, there's a complete reversal. The one who stole no longer does that. The one who is known is engaging in this behavior, taking things from others that did not belong to him for his own. He should no longer be known as that because he no longer engages in the predominant lifestyle and activity of his life. It says, Let the thief no longer steal. Now look at, look at the way the gospel radically transforms and changes this one who was a thief. It says, Rather let him labor. Let him pour out in sweat. This word labor here gives us the idea not of just casually doing things, but of pouring yourself out, pouring your whole body into difficult, back-killing labor. Difficult, back-killing labor. He said, look, let him no longer be known as one who would take things that didn't belong to him, but let him instead be known as a laborer, doing honest work with his own hands. Do you get a sense of how incredibly life-changing the gospel is for this thief? That this gospel of life change comes into the one who made his living by employing his hands for sinful means. And now he's told to come in and take these hands, these things that were employed for sinful means, and to use these same hands to be agents of redemption. He is displaying the gospel through this, through this incredible transformation. The thing he used for sin, now he uses to glorify God. The thing he used for sin has been changed, it has been transformed. He no longer uses it for evil, he uses it for good. And we can think of no end to the application to our own lives. meet people all the time in every walk of life. They've engaged in either white-collar crime, just a little bit of deceptiveness. They have employed some gift, some purpose, some facet of their being for sinful ends and sinful means. And it's amazing, when when the gospel comes in and it transforms who they are, God takes this portion of their former identity and he inserts it into a way that his kingdom might be expanded. And so, too, we can look at our own lives and, and, and ask the question, God, what way can you use my former life and use it to the advancement of your kingdom? Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. Now, look at the ultimate end of this. We've got the negative, we've got the positive, and now we have the motivation for the thief no longer stealing so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see the complete reversal of destination of this guy of this person he was incredibly preoccupied with taking things that did not belong to him to satisfy, to gratify self I mean ultimately this is what this person's doing they're taking things to satisfy themselves they're taking things to gratify themselves and now what they're being told is work so you can give stuff away work so that you can give stuff to anyone in need This is how radically transformative the gospel is in the life of the thief. This is how radically transformative the gospel is in our own lives. He takes us at our base level. He takes who we are on our worst day, and he completely 180s it. He completely transforms it into something that might be able to advance, expand his kingdom. It's amazing. God comes into this one. Who is known as a thief, and he makes him one who is so incredibly generous that he's working with his hands to give to one in need. See, when you put off the old self, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you're renewing your mind, and God is placing on you the new self. He changes everything about who you once were. He has given you a new body, He is giving you a, a new mind, and He's calling you to walk in that reality. Let the thief no longer steal. Now, in 25 through 29, we see this description. See the words. We see these attitudes. And lastly, we saw the actions. But we get into verse 30 and we recognize that all of these things are sinning against God. And When you, when you use your words in a way to abuse someone around you, not to build them up, you are sinning against God. recognize that the way paul describes it here is grieving the holy spirit and so when you engage with your words and this is never more prominent or prevalent until we come to an election season right you come into an election season brothers and sisters in christ and now all of a sudden you find out there's a libertarian in your midst you come into the election season, brothers and sisters in Christ, and then all of a sudden you find out there's a Green Party or a Democrat in your midst, and you're like, like we're a life group together. How could I know this? Like For some of you, it's almost like you expect them to be spying. Like you go back to the Cold War, and you're like, there's a KGB operative in my life group. They have seen my kitchen. And so we begin to tell just horrid, awful things about the people around us. Because they don't hold to the same ideology that we do. They don't think the way that we do. They don't vote the way that we do. And God forbid they endorse a candidate that we don't approve of. I can tell you this last election season, our local election, have got brothers and sisters going after other brothers and sisters in Christ and saying awful things about them. You put that junk on Facebook so everybody can see it. And you know what this does? It looks at the gospel of Jesus Christ and it said, this has no say over what comes out of my mouth. This has no input, no validity over what comes out of my mouth. I'm not telling you who to vote for. This is what I'm telling you. When you go out and you offer a character assassination over someone else, In in a public forum like that, people aren't looking at it and saying, well, you know, uh, this person, uh, Jim Bob is a Christian, but right now this here here is an election season. And what we really need to get out in front of people are, are the issues. And the issue is this person they're endorsing is an idiot. Or this person they're endorsing, I just can't stand them. And so I need to put all of this venom that I can on this person so no one votes for them. As a Christian, you don't have that license. It may cause, it may cost the election of whoever you're endorsing. But as a Christian, we can't do that. We cannot win. We cannot win at the expense of the gospel. It can't happen. It absolutely can't happen. The gospel, gospel comes in, it is putting off this whole self. This person who engaged in deceitfulness, this person who engaged in corrupting talk, this person who engaged in all of these things, it is putting this person off. It's renewing your mind, and it's putting on the new man. There is no way possible that we might be able to engage in these things and still say at the same time, Jesus Christ is Lord. Because they are antithetical. They are absolutely opposed to one another. Is our speech building up those around us and giving grace to them? If it's not, it's corrupting speech and it should not be named among us who follow Jesus Christ. Amen? The gospel demands something of us. And Paul wants us to get how weighty these things are. And so in some sense, he's come to us over and over and over again. And he said, if you do this, it destroys the unity of the body. And some of you say, I don't want to be unified with these jokers anyway. He says, if you do this, you're destroying the the body. And you say, "Ah, I'm not really crazy about that anyway. But you come into verse 30, and he says, if you do this, if you engage in this lifestyle, in this behavior, you grieve the Holy Spirit. You sin against a holy God. he wants us to see our close association with this Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit back in Ephesians 1.13, this is Paul's introduction to the Holy Spirit for us. He says, in him, speaking of in Christ, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the redemption that will come at the end of time. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this Holy Spirit has sealed you. He has put his stamp of approval on you. He holds your salvation secure, steadfast. He is giving testimony to God on your behalf. And when you transgress, when you sin, when you enter into idle gossip, when you enter into backbiting, when you enter into stabbing a brother or sister in the back, when you enter into these actions, when you act in accordance of who you used to be, not who you are now, you grieve the Holy Spirit. This is troubling. This is troubling. That we would sin against the one who seals us that we would sin against the one who has redeemed us, who has purchased us by power of his blood, that we would sin against a holy God. So Paul comes back into it in verse 31, and he offers a summary. And he describes all those words, attitudes, and actions that must no longer be a part of who we are now. And so he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and so he comes in there, and he's got this annoying, frustrating little word, all. And we read that, and we can't say, Paul, can you just say some? Like, once or twice, could you just say some in this? But instead he says all. Let all bitterness be put out of our hearts. And we think back on those who have wronged us, and we're like, I really, like, I need to keep this little bit of bitterness, you know? It's just like, yeah, all bitterness. In all wrath, and all anger, and all clamor, this idea of just berating those around us, yelling at them, clamoring, wanting to have our way, wanting to win them over to our perspective. He said, let them all be put away. Slander. Talk about a great description of the elect- electoral season in the American church. Slander. It can't be named among us. It can't be named among us. And look at how he moves from this idea of all of these negatives. And then in verse 32, he offers us again the positive and the motivation. He says, be kind to one another. Tender-hearted is how he describes it. Actually, it's this idea of becoming kind and tenderhearted to one another. I'm not a warm, fuzzy person. I am an introvert by nature. It is difficult for me to show you that I care through an outward expression of that. This is me telling you I care in an outward expression of that. If you're waiting on a hug, you're going to be waiting for a long time. When I am dead, you can hug my body. It's one sided, but I'm not moving. When you're dead, I won't hug yours. That's creepy. <laughs> no pastor wants to be known as the guy who hugs corpses. I think that's a true statement. This pastor does not want to be known as the one who hugs corpses, dead or otherwise. Um, he says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted. We have to outwardly manifest kindness to one another. And so that's how he goes into this. Put all this other stuff away, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, our hearts have to be impacted by the plight of those we encounter. So when we encounter our brothers and sisters, and they're struggling with these things, they're like, you know, I just I wasn't raised in this way, and so I really just want to use my words to abuse people. I really just wanted to do these things, and so instead, he comes in. He says, "This is how you counter these things: you be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Your heart breaks when you see them engage in sinful behavior. Your heart breaks when you see them struggling with these things. Your heart breaks, and you come along, and it was, it was we learned about it early in Eph- earlier in Ephesians. You bear up underneath them. You help support them when they are weak. The gospel calls us to this community ethos where we come together and we're seeking to support one another and to call one another into continued fellowship with god and so he begins this discussion and he says become kind and tender-hearted he gives us all this difficult bar to abide by and in the midst of being kind and tender-hearted look what he calls us to forgiveness In the midst of being kind and tender-hearted, we are to forgive one another. And he gives us this description of how. As God in Christ forgave you. Now I've heard this this errant, and and I'm just going to tell you wrong, interpretation of this. That people say, well, we don't actually need to forgive those around us until they come to us, until they confess that they've done something wrong to us, and then we see them make this full bore turn and and walk in a different way. Because Matt, that's how we come to know Jesus. And that's what the passage says, isn't it? Forgive as God and Christ forgave you. Well, How did God and Christ forgive us? The argument goes. Well, we confessed our sins to him. We have turned and we have walked the other way. And so this, this Wrong belief and interpretation purports to tell us that we are able to hold on to forgiveness, that we are not to forgive those who have wronged us until they come to us. This would see us be the masters of forgiveness. This would see us be able to hold on to forgiveness. Let me ask you a question How can you be kind and tender hearted while holding on to forgiveness? The disposition, the imperative, the command in this isn't to forgive. But it's this modifier that as we are kind, as we are tenderhearted, we demonstrate this through forgiveness. Friends, that is how God demonstrated his kindness and his tenderheartedness towards you. Recognize this. Ephesians 2 says we are dead. In the, in the midst of that deadness, in the midst of our transgressions, God came to us and he forgave us. He graciously came to us. He didn't wait for us to make some bold overture of, of, of this broken heart. He came to humanity when humanity was beset and against him. He came to humanity and he extended the ability to be forgiven. We can never parallel that in our relationships by setting ourselves up as God and waiting on people to come to us so that we might graciously hear them out and in turn offer forgiveness once they've requested it. We are to forgive. This is how we're known. You remember the primary distinctive we talked about last week between the Christian and the unchristian is forgiveness. Forgiveness. The Christian has been forgiven. The non-believer has not been forgiven. As Christians, as ones who have been forgiven, we are to forgive. I think think of Matthew 6. The disciples have spent a considerable amount of time with Jesus and they come to him and they want to know how to pray. And so he gives them a little bit of, of how not to pray, don't be loud, don't be boisterous, don't stand on the street corner. Instead, come in secret and pray this way. This is the pattern prayer that he gives him. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation. And look how he follows this up. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive Forgive your trespasses. I have no idea how this errant speculative interpretation of this passage in any way jives with the overwhelming testimony of Scripture. Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. If you are not forgiving someone, if they have wronged you, and you have been holding on to this forgiveness, the Word of God tells you, let it go. Because this forgiveness long held on to becomes this root of bitterness in you. And bitterness will not hurt them, but will kill you. As Christians, as those who have gone through, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, we have put off the old self. Through the daily infusion of power in the Holy Spirit, we are renewing our mind. And through the grace and goodness of our Lord God as exercised by the Holy Spirit. We have put on the new self what we see here is there are things that absolutely must not be name, named among us. And then we come into verse 32 and we recognize we must be the most forgiving people on earth. And why do we forgive? We forgive because we have been forgiven much. We forgive because God gives us and demonstrates to us this pattern of forgiving the inexcusable, forgiving the unforgivable, forgiving those that turned against him forgiving those that he died for. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. God, I thank you that you just, through the power of your word, you give us this incredible testimony of of what it is to live this new life, of, uh, of a life transformed God, I pray that you would help us to live lives well, that you would help us to understand what it is to walk in the reality of this new self that we're to put on, this new self made in the likeness of our Creator. God, we all sin, we all struggle with this. I thank you so much for your forgiveness. It's this this daily support and strength and enabling in my life and in the lives of all of us here. So, Father, we ask that you would continue to help us be aware of our need, of our dependence upon you. But God, help us too to be aware of the grace that, that you give to us. God, help us too to be aware of The fact that we are already forgiven. And Father, I pray that you would help us as we live in fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. That when we struggle together. When there's disagreement, when there are hurt feelings. That we would be quick to go to our brother and sister in Christ. And God, that as we extend apologies, that what we would find is not bitterness waiting for us, but what we would find is forgiveness that's been there all the time. God, that we would display the gospel and how we resolve tensions among us. Father, I thank you that you have resolved the tension between humanity In yourself, that you sent Jesus Christ to be a perfect and sinless sacrifice. And then you call on humanity to believe that, to cry out for the forgiveness extended to them through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, Him crucified and Him resurrected. I thank you that for the believers in Jesus Christ, we're able to walk in that reality. And Father, I pray for the movement of your spirit that it will be calling other men and women to yourself. Calling on them to accept this forgiveness. Calling on them to proclaim Christ, as Savior and Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.